Hello and welcome. You're listening to an audio presentation by Hamilton Adventist Church. Now, I know we're doing our lessons on the book of Daniel, but there are just some things that you just can't get enough of. And at the moment, I'm very much enjoying the study of the book of Daniel. And so our subject this morning is coming, no surprise, from Daniel chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles, please take them out. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 3 because I don't have the verses on the screen. And as you're going there, a little recap for us. The first six chapters of the book of Daniel deal with stories. They're telling us stories and the last six chapters tell us about end time prophecies that to do with the end of time. Now those stories that we meet in the first six chapters, they're not just good bedtime stories. These are stories that describe the qualities of the friends of Jesus, who what they'll have in their lives before Jesus comes back. So they show us really how we can be prepared for end time times just by reading these stories. And so we come to Daniel chapter 3, Verse 1, the Bible reads, Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its width 6 cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Now we'll just park right here and set the table for ourselves for just a moment because right off there is a discernible link between Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 3. You remember in Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream in which he saw a great image and it was made up of many different metals. Well now, in chapter 3, there's another image that is happening and this time Nebuchadnezzar builds it almost in an attempt to rewrite the future. God had said there would be, uh, Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar that God said that he was the head of gold, but then after him would come another kingdom and another kingdom and another kingdom, and Nebuchadnezzar just didn't like that. And so he went ahead and he made his image all of gold. And I wonder if deep down in Nebuchadnezzar's heart, if really he just didn't want to come, he didn't want his kingdom to come to an end because he was afraid. He was afraid because if his kingdom comes to an end, he comes to an end. And let's face it, nobody really wants to come to an end. And so in chapter 3, he's really acting out of his insecurities and arrogance. None of us want to come to an end either. We all want to have a hope and a future. The Bible tells us that God has placed eternity in all of our hearts. So really, right here from the get-go, Nebuchadnezzar, is defying his need for God. But praise God, God loves people like Nebuchadnezzar. God loved Nebuchadnezzar and he was trying to bring him to the place in his life where he would realize that he could do nothing without God, that without God we have no hope and we have no future. In a sense, in Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had had a conversion of intellect but not heart. His heart had not been converted. And the Bible tells us that the image he builds is how big? 60 cubits by 6 cubits. Now, we don't deal with cubits, but the ancients measured a cubit from the tip of your finger to the point of your elbow. So we're looking at a structure, at an image that's at least 30 meters high, 9 stories tall. Now, I don't know how tall this part of our church is, but it's pretty high. I actually think it's higher than that, um, this image that he builds on the plain of Dura, 30 meters high, nine stories tall, and you can imagine 
How brilliant this must have looked in the sunlight. It was glittering. It could be seen from all around. It was impressive. And you have to be rich to build an image like this. And oh, by the way, just so I highlight this point, the dimensions are given, and I think it's no coincidence, as we'll soon see, but I just want to share with you a little thing that happened to me this week. I had a bit of a stressful day, one day this week, and I needed to, my car was under repair, and so I borrowed Pastor Justin's car, and when I hopped in the car, I discovered something new about my husband. We are two different people, because when I drive my car, I always make sure my fuel is like on half. And then if it goes below half and the light comes on, that's like a national emergency. <laughs> my husband is a man of great faith. That light comes on and he just keeps driving. And I hopped in the car this week and it was, it was on red and the, the counter said I had like four kilometers left. So I was like, okay. So I went to the nearest petrol station. I was a bit flustered and I stopped the car behind the car in front and I turned around to get my handbag which I put in the back seat and I'd forgotten to put my car in park and the car went forward and the next thing I heard was a ding and I looked up and I'd hit the guy in front of me. I got, I reversed, I got out and I had a look and praise God he had a bull bar on the back of his car. So his car was fine. My car has a new dent on it. Well, Justin's <laughs> Anyway, so I felt terrible about that. And I apologized to the man. I showed him that I'd hit the car and he was fine because his car was all right. I went in to pay for my fuel. And this is the only reason why I'm telling you this story. My fuel cost $66.61. <laughs> six, six, six. And I, she said, do you want the, the receipt? I said, yes, give it to me because I want to remember this. <laughs> but the dimensions are given here. And I think it's interesting because we find some similar dimensions in the book of Revelation. We'll get there later on. Notice what it says in verse 2. And actually, one last thing before I go there. We know from archaeology that Nebuchadnezzar had a massive ego. In fact, they have unearthed thousands of mud bricks with his name stamped into them. That's how much he thought about himself. But we're not told what this image looked like, but I almost wonder if it had a resemblance to Nebuchadnezzar in, in what it looked like. All right, verse 2. King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather together the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image in which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Anybody who was anybody and everybody who was somebody was not invited. They were commanded to come to this event. And it was significant for two reasons. Number one, Nebuchadnezzar was the most powerful man in the world. He was the political economic leader of the then known world. And now he was calling for people to worship this image. He was now becoming a spiritual leader as well. And he was basically saying, I don't care what God has said. I have set up my own image. This represents the permanence of my kingdom. Whatever God says makes no difference to me. And so we have this contrast going on now between chapter 2 and chapter 3. In chapter 2, you have the true image that is set up of what God says will happen. In chapter 3, we have a counterfeit image that is being set up. God's way in chapter 2. Man's way in chapter 3, verse 4. 
The Bible says, Then a herald cried aloud and said, To you it is commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages. Again, I'm just highlighting the language that is being used here. The word key that is key in this text is commanded. This universal leader issues a universal command. And what does he command? Verses 5 onwards, he says, At the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that Nebuchadnezzar has set up. In this verse, the key word is worship. This chapter warns us, really, how dangerous it is, how dangerous it is for you and I to be half converted. That's what Nebuchadnezzar was, to be intellectually converted, but to not have a hard experience with God means that now Nebuchadnezzar will seek to impose his own understanding of worship on the multitude. And I want to just highlight here, we're very blessed to have beautiful music in this church. Can you say amen? Um, but music is a very powerful vehicle, and evidently it has the power to medicate even our minds. I was talking to my dad. We had a drive to Kempsey this week, and I said, Dad, tell me all you think about Daniel chapter 3. And so we got to this part, and he told me that research shows that people who love listening to country music, the statistics show a higher correlation between suicide um, than any other music genre. Is that interesting to you? I thought, Dad, are you serious? So I went and I did my own Google research, and Dad was telling me the truth. <laughs> um, apparently, they say if you play country songs backwards, they're much happier. Your wife comes back, your money comes back, your job comes back, because they often sing, not always, but often sing about sad things, and it affects your mood. And, but just country music aside, music is powerful. And we know that. We live in a culture where we go shopping and what's playing on the speaker? Music. You hop in your car, you've got radio, there's constantly we're being bombarded by music and you will find today that many people will do under the influence of music things they would never do if the music wasn't playing. So music is powerful. Satan knows it. He was once the choir leader in heaven. And in this story, Nebuchadnezzar uses it to harness the people into a false, um, false worship. So again, to summarize, Nebuchadnezzar is a world leader. And he issues a command to worship a counterfeit image. It's a counterfeit system of worship. And he also goes on to tell us what he will do to those who don't. Notice verse 6. Anyone, whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning fiery furnace. Now, this command to worship the image, is this a violation of any of God's commandments? Yes, it's a direct violation of the second commandment where God says to us, you shall not make for yourself a carved image of any likeness of anything. That's what God had commanded for his people. 
And by the way, those commandments become promises when we accept Jesus. He wants to empower us to follow him, amen? And so I like to think of them almost like a wedding vows. When I say yes to Jesus, I say no to everybody else. And this is how I'm going to maintain my friendship with Jesus. He, he doesn't want me to worship any other idols. And so we see that this was now a test commandment on the plain of Jura. Notice now that this language that we've read thus far is very reflective of language we find in another book of the Bible. Keep your finger in Daniel chapter 4, turn over to Revelation chapter 13. I just want to show you something, not study it with you in detail, but just highlight how the book of Revelation brings all of the books together. Many people don't understand the last book of the Bible because they haven't studied the book of Daniel. A lot of the issues that we find in the book of Daniel, they are repeated and enlarged upon at the last, in the last book of the Bible. So Revelation chapter 13, notice what the Bible describes here. There are two beasts that we find in this chapter. In the first one, I'll just read to you from verse 1 of Revelation 13. It says, Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his, on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now, by the Bible's own definition, a beast in Bible prophecy represents a kingdom or a political power. Revelation 13 describes two beasts. So we're talking about two end time powers. And this first one, if you keep reading, and we're not going to, but it's actually made up of four different animals. It's kind of a beast you never want to go to the zoo and see. But these animals, I'm mentioning them to you because they also are mentioned in Daniel chapter 7. So you need to understand Daniel, the book of Daniel in order to understand the book of Revelation as well. And notice at the end of this chapter, just the similarity of the language, verse 12. Um, notice what Revelation 13 says. And he, this is now another beast, the earth beast, he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. So there's a call to worship as well, just like in Daniel chapter 3. And notice verse 15, it says, And he was granted power to give breath to the image. Oh, that's interesting because we're reading about an image in Daniel chapter 3. To give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And so, again, we just see very clearly we've got worship mentioned in Revelation 13. We have a worldwide call for this worship uh, mentioned. We've also got a false image mentioned. And then at the very end of verse 15, there's also a threat for those who will not worship this beast power. They're going to be faced with a death decree as well. And it seems very similar to what we're seeing in Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3 describes a universal leader who makes a universal decree that defies or violates God's law, the second commandment. And those who won't do what Nebuchadnezzar says, they're going to be threatened with death in a fiery furnace. Why am I saying all of this to you? Because I want to ask you this question. Could it be 
that God has included these stories in the book of Daniel for us so that you and I can see how we can trust God when our faith comes under fire. Could it be that God wants us to see how we can survive times of trial by seeing how God's faithful people survived it in this chapter in the story that we're reading? So now we go back to Daniel chapter 3, and we want to see and ask this question, how can we find hope as we prepare for the soon return of Jesus from this story that we're studying together in Daniel 3? We're up to chapter 3, and we're up to verse 8. Therefore, the Bible says, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward, that's like the PhDs of Babylon, and accused the Jews, and they spoke to King Nebuchadnezzar and said, O king, live forever. (laughs) Since when does a greeting like that extend your life? But that's how they come. They come and they are buttering him up. Nebuchadnezzar was very happy with the way they approach him. Verse 10, you, O king, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, and symphony, and all kinds of music shall fall down and worship the gold image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews, we know their names even, whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, These men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. I love this because when everybody else on the plain of Dura fell down flat on their face when the music began, there were three young men among the thousands on the plain of Judah that stood silhouetted against the copper sky. The Bible doesn't say they were all standing together either. We don't know where they were standing, but it is possible that one was here, one was there, another was over there. And when they, they might have felt all alone until that moment, but when the people bowed, they saw each other and they also could see over the sea of bowing subjects, those, that fiery furnace that was roaring with a passionate heat. I think that's important for us to keep in mind too. Because sometimes when we stand for God, we might feel like we're standing alone. But you're not alone. There are 7,000 who haven't bowed the knee. God has his faithful people. And I wonder if, as the music played and the people bowed, if there were some people that were standing next to these guys, wherever they were, and said, hey, get down. Bow down. Just bend down. You don't have to mean it. Just tie your shoelace or something. But they didn't. It's fascinating to me. There's Nebuchadnezzar, his life being governed by fear. He doesn't want his kingdom to end out of his insecurities. He builds an image that he thinks will change the future. Then there are the people who are bowing because they're afraid of being thrown into a fiery furnace if they don't. And then there are these three young Hebrew worthies. They are not afraid of the fire. They're not bowing. They don't come under the influence of the peer pressure around them or under the influence of the music that is playing. They refuse to worship any other God but the true God. And I like that. It inspires me and it challenges me. In 1 Peter 2 verse 9, the Bible describes God's true people as a peculiar people. And it really doesn't take that much to be peculiar 
today. Mind you, God's not calling us to be weird. Amen? (laughs) There's a difference between weird and peculiar. He wants us to be different. He wants us to be His peculiar people. When I say it doesn't take much to be peculiar, you just be faithful to one spouse and the world will think you're crazy. That's how much our society has changed. Shadrach could have dropped his watch. Meshach could have bent down and tied his shoelaces. Abednego, he could have decided that his back was sore and he'll do some stretching. (laughs) Uh, They could have said, well, everybody else is doing it. It's just going to be for 10 minutes. We'll never do it again. God will understand. Why throw away our lives for 10 minutes? Anything can serve as an excuse for us when our hearts are bent on compromise. But these young men weren't looking for excuses. And so these Chaldeans come and accuse them before the king and they make a two-pronged charge against these two Hebrews. Number one, they have broken the state law. And number two, they're not worshipping in the prescribed way which you are calling for us to worship. In the days of Nebuchadnezzar, we see a union between church and state. They come together to unite, to enforce worship. In the life of Jesus, in the time of Jesus, church and state came together. The religious rulers joined with the Romans and together they crucified Jesus. The union of church and state is never good news for God's people because religion should never be forced It is against the character of God always to force people to worship. Now we come to verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and fury, he was angry, gave the command to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, so they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true? And I like how he does that. Even in churches today, Many problems get started because whispering happens. One person says this about somebody and somebody and somebody, and we just believe the whispering when we should go straight to the source and ask, is it true? So he did a good thing in going straight to them. Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? Verse 15. Now, if you are ready... At the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery in symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the same issue in Revelation 13, worship the image which I have made good. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. I love how he describes it. Could have just said you'll be thrown in the furnace but he says it's a burning fiery furnace and who is the god who will deliver you from my hands nebuchadnezzar basically says to these young men i'm going to operate on the possible assumption that you missed the former announcement you see that band you see that image when that band plays you bow down or else i will throw you in that furnace are we clear do you get it It was bow or burn. And then he finishes his command with perhaps one of the dumbest questions in the Bible. He says, and who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? He's already had an incredible encounter with the God of heaven in chapter 2. But it's if he is wondering in the back of his mind if Daniel's God is is able to deliver 
these guys even now? Would his God intervene even now? And he is about to receive the answer to that question, verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. A better rendition of the Aramaic here would be, we have no need to answer you. We have no, sorry, we, have, we are not hesitant to answer you in this matter. We have no time, we don't need time to think about this. They already knew about the image. They'd seen it being made, read about it in the newspaper, seen the posts on Facebook. They'd gone as far as they could to honour the word of the king. And I think that's an important point to make up too. They were actually there just as the king had commanded. But when the command of man conflicted with the command of God, they could not bow, even when the music played. Why didn't they bow to just tie their shoelaces? And this is the whole point. Because they had made a decision ahead of time that they would not compromise their integrity. They had made a decision ahead of time that they would honor Jesus, they would honor God. And there are some decisions that you and I need to make today in order to be ready to stand tomorrow. There are some decisions we make ahead of time or else we will never make them in the heat of the moment. If you don't stand for something now, you will fall for anything when trials and winds blow. If you, that means if you go to a party and you haven't made up your mind that you're not going to drink before you get there, well then you won't. <laughs> you might just go ahead and drink. But if you've made up your mind that you are not going to cloud your mind with a substance that will cloud your mind so that you cannot hear God's voice, then when you go, you've already made that decision. You've prepared. These young people had decided ahead of time that they were going to follow God no matter what. We saw that in Daniel chapter 1. They would not eat of the king's delicacies because they wanted to honor God with even what they ate. We see it in Daniel chapter 2 when that death decree came because the king had dreamed the dream and no one could tell him what it was. They prayed. They had a prayer meeting. They weren't fearful. They were going to trust in God. And then in Daniel chapter 3, suddenly we see again their faith in God is not shaken because they have already chosen to honour him. Verse 17, if that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. They didn't need a lawyer. They didn't need more time. They were pleading guilty as charged, and they were so united in their decision that when one of them spoke, none of them needed to say, well, actually, that's not how I feel. <laughs> when one of them spoke, he spoke for all of them. Why? They were saying, Nebuchadnezzar, we believe that God is able to rescue us, and we hope and even expect that he will. We know he is able to carry us through. He's able. We love that song. We think that we, but our faith rather is not founded on what we think God is going to do or on what we think God or what we hope God will do. 
Our faith is based on who God is, and He is everything to us. We love Him with all of our hearts, and we cannot trade Him for your image, okay? If He doesn't deliver us, we would rather die than compromise on our relationship with Him. So do your worst, King. Do your worst, world. Our decision has been made. Here we stand. We can do no other. And in standing and in saying these words to this pagan king, they reveal to Nebuchadnezzar something that he doesn't have. They have something that he doesn't have. They are not afraid. God was using them through this testimony to draw Nebuchadnezzar to have a deeper experience with him. So here it is again. This is amazing stuff. How is it that they could be so bold when their faith was going through the fire? Faith. How could they be like this? You know, in Hebrews chapter 11, as we step through this series, we will see many heroes of faith. And these three Hebrew worthies don't receive a mention by name in this chapter. But all of the heroes in Hebrews chapter 11 were just ordinary people like you and me, who chose to put their trust in an extraordinary God. Faith is not a good luck charm that means things will always go well. Faith is not feeling. Listen carefully. Faith is a relationship with God as a friend well known. It is knowing that he will never harm or hurt me, that I can trust in him no matter what. Can you say amen? That's what it means to have faith in God. Faith is trusting God when things don't go well. Faith is sometimes it means it's looking through tears and knowing that God is still there. Sometimes faith is living through the loss or grief or heartache of life and knowing that through this, God has not left you. It is listening to his still small voice and knowing that a better day will come. Daniel had faith in a lion's den. Moses had faith when he walked through the Red Sea with the children of Israel. Stephen had faith as they were stoning him to death. And friends, Jesus had faith when he hung on a cross with the nails in his hands, when Peter denied him, when the scribes and elders reviled him, when the darkness was all around him, when Judas betrayed him, when the Jews left him, when the Romans crucified him, he would even pray, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. That's faith. It is trusting God when you cannot see. If you could see it, it wouldn't be faith. It would be sight. Faith is only faith when we cannot see. It is believing that God is there for you as he has promised even when times get tough. God can take our brokenness and difficulties and he can draw us closer to him in these experiences. I had a friend in Norway and he describes faith as an acronym. Faith, F-A-I-T-H. He says, fantastic adventures in trusting him. That's what faith is. It's trusting God no matter what. So, verse 19 
then Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury and the expression on his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. He spoke and commanded that they heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. Universal leader, decree, violating God's command. Again, we keep reading. Uh, I also actually want to highlight one thing here. How does he know it's seven times hotter? How do you measure that? I don't know, but I wonder if in this verse, because the Babylonians, they worked on a number system that was based around the number six. That was their number. They invented the hexadecimal system built on that number. So could it be that in heating it seven times hotter, it was an attempt to mock the God of the Hebrews by even mocking their allegiance to God on his seventh day? It could be. Then notice verse 20. And he commanded certain mighty men of valor who were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. These men were bound in their coats, their trousers, their turbans, and other garments and were cast into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace exceedingly hot, the flame of the fire killed those men who took Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down bound into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. I just want to pause and highlight this because that fire is so hot as the soldiers push this trio in, they are killed by the blast of the hot gases that come from this place. This tells me something very important, that the greatest trials in this life that you and I encounter will destroy us if, unless rather, unless we are willing to go all the way with Jesus. If we try and meet the trials of life on our own, we will be consumed. But when we meet the trials of life with Jesus and we follow him all the way, even in the furnace, we will be safe. Because watch what happens in verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and he rose in haste and spoke, saying to his counselors, he does a quick head count, did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. Look, he answered, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt and the form of the fourth is like the son of God. Question. How does he know what the Son of God looks like? I'm going to read to you a little paragraph, very short, from a book called Prophets and Kings. And it answers this question. She says, The Hebrew captives, filling positions of trust in Babylon, had in life and character represented before him the truth. They had told of Christ, the Redeemer, to come. And in the form of the fourth, in the midst of the fire, the king recognized the Son of God. A true Christian is someone who, when you look at them, they remind you of Jesus. And they had presented to this king what God was like. And so when he saw the Son of God in the flame, he recognized who it was. Are you going through a fiery trial in your life? Is there something that you are going through that nobody else knows about? Perhaps it's a, something to do at work. Maybe it's a family situation. Maybe it's some health crisis that you have had to face. As you go through the trials of life, when you put your trust in Jesus, you can know that God goes with you in the fire. Amen?
Faith is relationship, trusting God as your best and dearest friend. All the fiery trial will do to you as you go into that fire is burn the bonds that tie you to this earth and it will give you a longing for eternity that this world cannot give. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego were thrown into this place and they found that Jesus was there with them. They were not alone. That's wonderful news that Jesus never leaves us. God stands with those who stand for him. It was like when they were in that furnace, those flames became air conditioning. And so we read verse 26. We're nearly finished. Yes, we are. Then Nebuchadnezzar went near the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and spoke, saying, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came from the midst of the fire the satraps, administrators, governors, and king's counselors gathered together, and they saw these men on whose bodies, what does it say? The fire had no power. The hair of their head was not singed, nor were their garments affected, and the smell of fire was not on them. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel capital A, and delivered his servants who trusted in him. And they have frustrated the king's word and yielded their bodies that they should not serve nor worship any god except their own god. The three men walk out. The fourth man vanishes and nothing has been affected on their person. That's amazing to me because when we had those bushfires just here and I was hanging my washing and I'm bringing in my washing and my towel smelt like bushfire smoke. These guys were in the furnace and their clothes did not even smell of smoke. That's how much they, that God had been with them all the way. They were freer in the fire than they were outside of it because the bonds that they were bound with were burnt. And so at the end of verse 29, the Bible tells us that Nebuchadnezzar makes a final decree and he says, no one should speak anything against the God of these young men. Because, notice how it finishes, there is no other God who can deliver like this. They were promoted, and that's the last we hear of them, but it will not be the last we see of them. By God's grace, we will get to meet them one day when we reach the heavenly promised land, and we'll get, they'll get to tell us their story of what it was like. Nebuchadnezzar had asked, who is the God who is able to deliver you from my hand? And now he knew the answer. You never know what God is going to do with the afflictions that you face in your life. I'm going to finish off, but I want to share with you this one story because in the scripture reading today, it reads the end of chapter 11. And all through chapter 11, there are amazing, incredible deliverances that God works and perhaps we'll study some more as we continue through this series. But at the end of chapter 11, as Marianne read the scripture reading this morning, you read a whole list of people who lost their lives because they chose to be faithful to God. And yet their testimonies were not in vain. Their lives were not in vain because their lives were a witness to others that put their faith in God because of the sacrifice that they made. These young men were willing to make that sacrifice and God used that testimony in a way they could never have imagined to witness to the king of Babylon. So I just want to close with this quick story, and I'm sorry I have to read some of it, but it's a powerful story. Um, some of you may have heard it. In 1921, there is a story of David and Sphere Flood. 
They left their native Sweden with their two-year-old son. Reminds us a little bit of our Swedish friends who just went back there. They set out for the interior of Africa where they were going to be missionaries to the Belgian Congo with another young Scandinavian couple named the Ericsons. The chief, though, when they arrived, would not let them enter the village for fear of alienating their local gods, and so the two couples opted to go a short distance away and they settled in mud huts of their own not far from the village. They were praying to God for a breakthrough so they could share the gospel with these villagers. But no breakthrough seemed to come. The only contact this couple and these two couples had with this village was a young boy who came to sell chickens and eggs to them. And he would come twice a week. Well, Sphere Flood decided that if this was the only opportunity she would have to connect with the locals in this place, then she would try and share Jesus with this little boy. She would teach him about Jesus, and she did. But there were no other converts during their time there. Malaria struck this missionary team, and in time, the Ericsons, they decided they had to go home. The floods remained. And when time came for Sphere to give birth to their second child, a daughter, the village chief agreed that he would let the midwife come and help them, and she delivered a healthy baby girl um, who was born, but the delivery was difficult, and Sphere Flood died 17 days later. Her husband, David, was very angry with God. He dug a cruel, crude grave, buried his young wife, and took his two children back to the mission field. He left his baby girl with the Ericsons, and he returned to Sweden, saying, God has ruined my life. Both the Ericsons died eight months later, and so the little girl that had been left with them, she was now taken by American missionaries and she grew up in the United States of America from age three onwards. Her name was Aggie. As Aggie grew, she went to the North Central Bible College in Minneapolis and she married a young man named Dewey Hurst. Now this is where the story gets amazing. Years later, her husband became president of the Christian College in the Seattle area, and she found much Scandinavian heritage there. One day, a photo in a Swedish religious magazine caught her eye. There, in a primitive setting, was a grave with a white cross, and on the cross were the words, Sphere Flood. She knew that name from her family. That was her mother's name. And the the story told underneath, 600 Christian believers now lived in that village as a testimony to the sacrifice made by David and Sphere Flood. But it doesn't end there. Aggie knew she had to go to Sweden. Her father now married with four children. He was an old man, was bitter and broken. When she came to his bed, he turned away and began to cry. Aggie, he said, I never meant to give you away. She said, it's all right, taking him gently into her arms. God took care of me. By the end of that afternoon, this man who had been so angry with God for taking his wife's life in the mission field, he decided that he would give his heart back to Jesus again. This is the highlight. Some years later, Aggie and her husband attended an evangelism conference in London. And there, an incredible report was given from the nations, uh, from the nation of, uh, I'm going to say this wrong, Zaire, is African, I've got it right, did I say it right? Never mind. The former Belgian Congo. 
the superintendent of the national church representing 110,000 baptized believers in this place. He spoke eloquently of the gospel spread in his nation. After his presentation was finished, Aggie went to him and asked him if he had ever heard of David and Sphere Flood. He said, yes, ma'am. And he replied in French, Sphere Flood led me to Jesus Christ. I was the boy who brought food to your parents before you were born. You must come to Africa. Your mother is the most famous person in our history. Isn't that an amazing story? She will never have known that by losing her life in this mission field, God was going to plant seed that would spring up in the lives of so many and lead people to Jesus. You and I don't know what God is working out, the bigger picture of what God is working out through the trial and testing of our faith. But we can know this, that God goes with us all the way and we can trust him. We do not have to have a faith that says, I will follow you if... Our faith in Jesus, I will follow you regardless of what comes my way because I love you more than anything or anyone in this world. And if that is your desire, if you want to say with me today, you want to decide today ahead of time that I will trade Jesus for nothing and no one. I want him to be first in my life. Would you just raise your hands where you are? So you raise it as a sign to God. God sees our hands. You have made a decision today. Praise God. You have made your decision that Jesus comes first and you will follow him no matter what.